A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. What did you all do for the 4th of July? Anything exciting? Uh, um, mostly tried to console our dog. I just have to say, that's, that's what I we just do. We need to. It just this needs to stop. We need to replace the fireworks with drone shows. Not only because it is more environmentally friendly, but because there are so many dogs who are so upset on July Fourth. It's so sad. We had to finally give my dog uh, a sedative because she like oh, no. she was just shivering, and like I like I was home babysitting our son while my wife took her parents out to see the fireworks, and so I was like sitting with a toddler on one side, dog on the other. Then I put the toddler down. I was like, well, I'm just going to kind of hold this dog who's shivering and terrified (laughs) for like two hours. (laughs) And it was terrible. And I was worried she wasn't going to sleep. So eventually we just gave her a fairly intense sedative and that worked. (laughs) You just have those on hand? Well, she had surgery a while ago and they said, "Uh, keep the extra, you know, in case she fireworks basically or other things that like get her really upset. So turns out it was useful. Have you tried a thunder shirt? I find them they're, they're both very effective and they make them look like hot dogs, which is also really cute. They kind of they can turn every dog into a dachshund. It's wonderful. Oh, I'm, I should we should try. We have one, but it was when she was younger, and so it was. I don't think she would fit in it. So I was I was hesitant to try it. I was like, also we could just put my toddler's like T-shirt on her. It might have had the same effect, but I'm not sure that's the right way to handle that. How was your toddler and the fireworks? He was fine. He was asleep before they started and has not heard it. The thing is in my neighborhood, though, which is I think a thing in many urban areas now, but but D.C., it's particularly prevalent, particularly I think my corner that's like a little more residential family. I mean, there's like a lot of teenagers with not much to do and a lot of empty alleyways. There's fireworks all the time for like weeks on end on either side of Fourth of July. And so we hear them constantly. And there, our neighborhood is also not – not known for not having shootings. So it's very confusing sometimes because you're like, is uh, this a firework? Is it fire <laughs> firearms? You know, which way is it going to go? Uh, and so it's just a, it's just really complicated thing. But my son, for better or for worse, has been hearing him for weeks and he's like, eh, I don't even care anymore. He's over it. <laughs> Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Rational Security. I am one of your regular co-hosts, Scott R. Anderson, here in the IRL studio with one of my other co-hosts, Quinta Jurassic. Hello. And in the virtual studio with our third co-host, Alan Rosenstein. Hello, hello. And we are excited to be back with you recovering from the night of revelry that is the 4th of July. Explosions everywhere, steamy, at least here in Washington, D.C. I I don't know about Minnesota, but I'm sure we'll find out in a second. Uh, (laughs) Steamy, hot, thick air that is the July. We had such a beautiful June and it just just faded into the worst, like as bad a July as we've ever had in D.C. Uh, In terms of, you know, humidity, you can slice with a knife. Um, That always makes 4th of July Let's be honest, pretty uncomfortable, folks. But that's okay. Uh, but Alan, what's, what's how is fun it? Is if you have your your little like heart monitor watch and you just like go for a walk or something, you can see that it thinks you're exercising. Mine shorts out from the so sweat, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it stops working. It's just little shocks along the way. Alan, how how is what is Minnesota like? Or Fourth of July like in Minnesota? Is it just you know cheese and perfect weather, or cheese and imperfect weather? You know, for, for some reason, this 4th of July was like the turning point between a very muggy June and what appears to be a really lovely July. So we had Ooh. one rainstorm early in the day, and then it got nice. And today it's like high of 81. 
It's, it's a breeze. God damn it. Air quality is oh, so, fabulous. So nice. Everyone should move to Minnesota. That's what I keep saying. I feel like I feel like Minnesota is increasingly being proven to be bizarro, Washington, D.C., weather-wise. We're just going to keep flipping upside down. The M turns into a W, and there we are. That's that's what happens. <laughs> well, we are excited to have you, the listeners, here for what we are calling in honor of our national celebration, the Bang, Pow, Sparkle edition. Uh, I just wanted to yell that in your ear uh, for the purpose of this podcast. <laughs> Because in spite of the holiday, in spite of us all having had a lot going on over the last few days unrelated to work, national security news has not slowed down. And we have a couple stories we want to talk over with you. Topic one, oi revolts. I'm trying to say it like oi revolt, but I don't feel like I'm not quite pulling it off. Is that right? I feel like I captured it. Something? Oi revolt. Oi revolt. A bit of an okay. accent there. There you go. Something like that. Um, Israel launched a major military operation aimed at uprooting terrorist bases, purported terrorist bases, in the refugee camp outside of the city of Jenin in the West Bank this week. But as is so often the case, the operation not only proved deadly for Palestinian civilians, but has become a point of controversy in the international community. What does this operation say about Israel's security strategy? How sustainable is it? Topic two, nationwide disjunction. On July 4th, a federal judge in Louisiana celebrated by issuing a nationwide injunction ordering the Biden administration not to engage with social media platforms over what it described as First Amendment protected speech, rising specifically out of complaints about the Biden administration's engagement with social media around COVID-19 information and opinions or misinformation, depending on how you think about it. What is the basis for this order? How realistic is it? How sustainable is it? Where will it lead from here? And what does it tell us about the weird legal dynamics surrounding the set of issues at the moment. On topic three, Alamodi, Indian President Narendra Modi is having <laughs> I see a moment. What you, I see what you did there, Scott. That was pretty good. It doesn't just mean with ice cream on it. That's not what I'm implying about uh, our, our, our leader of India. I am suggesting, in fact, that he is of the moment, um, but also maybe likes ice cream. Indian President Narendra Modi is having a moment. This week, he is sitting down with Chinese and Russian leaders hosting a virtual face-to-face of the Shanghai Cooperative. But just last week, he was being feted by President Biden and Congress here in Washington, D.C. What are we to make of India's new global prominence? How is Modi balancing his role? And how are his potential partners balancing their relationship with him, given some of the concerns about his governance? For our first topic, Quinta, let me hand it over to you. So on Monday, um, Israel launched what is being widely reported as the most intense airstrikes on the West Bank um, that have been conducted in nearly two decades since the Second Intifada in the early 2000s. Um, This is targeted at a refugee camp on the outskirts of the West Bank city of Jenin. Israel said that the the aim was to try to root out a group of armed militants after escalating violence in the area. According to the Palestinian health ministry, at least eight Palestinians were killed. Israel, I believe, says that they were all combatants. This is also just, uh, I believe, a week or less than a week after there was uh, additional violence in the area. Uh, Four Israelis had been killed by Palestinians in the West Bank, which was then followed by a series of violent raids by Israeli settlers on Palestinian villages. Uh, They reportedly set fire to uh, cars and houses. So... This is also significant because it's one of one of a handful um, of military operations launched in occupied territory by the new far right Israeli government, um, which I think is adds an additional sort of complicating layer um, and raises a lot of questions for me about how we are thinking about sort of this part of the escalation cycle, for lack of a better term, and the 
uh, Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Um, so, Scott, let me turn it over to you just uh, to fill in any holes that I had in my little overview there and for your sort of top-line thoughts. Yeah, you know, we have to wait a little bit to see what comes out of this operation politically and kind of in the region. I'll point to a piece Dan Byman, uh, our policy editor here at Lawfare, a senior fellow here at the Brookings Institution uh, and a general expert in a variety of issues, but including uh, Middle East and counterterrorism issues. Um, he wrote a great kind of flash piece on this for us on Monday of this week on Lawfare that I encourage folks to check out. But I think the main takeaways are this. You know, this is obviously a significant military operation. It's reflective of the Israeli government's purported approach to this broader set of issues, which is that they are going to use Israel's very impressive military and intelligence capabilities to try and root out and directly target threats um, and are willing to assume a degree of international criticism over that, uh, a risk to fatalities for Palestinian civilians. This isn't the first time we've seen um, Palestinian c- civilians, or at least who some people claim are civilians, um, having been injured or killed in incidents like this or Israeli-led military operations recently, some of which have been pretty daring, including a lot of in-person raids. But it doesn't do anything to really address the underlying structural factors that are contributing to this scenario. In fact, it seems to be making them worse by most measures. Um, One of the results of this offensive is that uh, Mahmoud Abbas, the Palestinian Authority, directed Israeli, pardon me, the Palestinian government to stop coordinating with Israel on security cooperation. This is actually a very big deal. I mean, the Palestinian Authority cooperation with Israeli authorities has been a by, the, by many people's assessment, a, a kind of source of great stability in the region, a source of the effective suppression of a lot of potential violence in Israel primarily, honestly, as well as in parts of the West Bank. And that security co- cooperation is real. It was a priority for the United States. The United States has played a central role in facilitating it. That was disrupted during the Trump administration um, due to a law enacted by the Trump administration, the Anti-Terrorism Clarification Act, for a number of months, but was kind of reinvigorated but has fallen prey to kind of the broader tension between the two sides and the Palestinian authorities' broader governance issues. Um, the fact that they have endemic corruption, um, that Mahmoud Abbas is really exercising less and less structural control over the state, which is kind of stopped functioning as any, any sort of democratic or representative government and is still now kind of increasingly dysfunctional even as any sort of administrative authority. So so the value of that security cooperation has declined, but nonetheless was significant. And now there's not even interest in engaging it anymore. And this also comes as a moment where, you know, the Israeli government is purportedly, um, despite widespread criticism, even among Israelis, of a policy still interested in moving forward with efforts to boost settlements in the West Bank, uh, to claim more authority of West Bank domestically within Israel, also restructuring its uh, role of its Supreme Court and related alignments of civil liberties. And those are really the underlying both weakness for the government of Israel um, in terms of the domestic side and, and foreign policy side you know, a real source of the security threat is the fact that you Israel is essentially not just in possession of a failed state kind of within its borders or at least adjacent to its borders, but is actually cultivating and making it a failed state by facilitating a lot of these measures that foment anger, bypass local governance mechanisms, allowing those local governance mechanisms to kind of fester. And it just leads to a situation where you Essentially, it seems like Israel is going to have to do this more and more often to address security concerns or will do so. And those security concerns are not going to be alleviated in any meaningful way in the the, uh, broader term. And so, you know, you think of earlier periods like the Intifada, first and second Intifada, came out of long periods of broadening discontent and an inability to address broader structural concerns. And those were much serious, more serious security threats in a lot of ways to Israel. 
And it kind of seems like that's a trajectory we may be headed down now, at least in, from my um, assessment. But, uh, you know, it's it's a it's a tricky set of issues here. Um, and, of course, this also intersects with the U.S.-Israeli relationship and the relationship of Israel to the broader national community. We can dig into that a little bit more, but I'll let me stop talking for the moment. No, I think that's a really helpful overview of the situation. You know, the, the, the two questions that arise for me out of this are, one, you know, how much of this is just sort of business as usual and maybe just a more extreme version of a policy you can imagine other Israeli governments carrying out? Um, and how much of this is the influence of you know, not just Benjamin Netanyahu, but far-right members of his cabinet, you know, people like um, Itamar Ben-Gvir and Bezalel Smotrich, who are sort of notorious right-wingers and, and you know, in some cases have been themselves convicted of, of you know, anti-Palestinian hate crimes in, in the past before being brought into this far-right government. So it's one, sort of one question I have, um, and it's sort of not obvious to me what the answer is there. And the other question I have, and Scott, you touched on this a little bit, is what is going to be the effect of this on Israel's relationships? Part of this is, again, with the United States. But part of this, and maybe even the more important part, is with you know, other Arab nations, the governments of which have, in the last several years, actually moved a remarkable way down the path of normalizing and even having friendly relations with Israel, even if their populations are much less keen on that. You know, a good example of this is Saudi Arabia, which uh, has, has you know, made a, a quite notable about face, um, you know, largely because I think a lot of Arab governments are just not that interested in the Palestinian cause anymore. And also because for a lot of Arab governments, um, Iran is actually a much, much bigger threat than Israel ever was. And so there's a sort of the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Um, and so I'm just curious whether or not um, Israel will be able to maintain these more positive diplomatic relations with uh, its Arab neighbors, given this increased violence, um, especially if, as Scott points out, um, this spirals into a, a third intifada down, down the line. And I guess that's then the third question, which is, what is the chance of that happening? Right. I mean, you know, Israel over the last two decades has gotten exceptionally good at tamping down on, you know, violence from the occupied territories. And so I, I do wonder if there's a, a calculation happening inside the Israeli government that you know, it can keep the lid more tightly on any sort of mass uprising better than it was able to two decades ago. And so it has more leeway to take these sorts of you know, short-term actions that while they do uh, inflame, obviously, the anger of the Palestinians also degrade their capabilities in the short term to uh, attack Israelis and settlers. Yeah, I mean, to to the question about the role of the right wing government, I wonder, as Scott, as you were talking, I was sort of thinking about this. One way to think about it might be this is kind of within the lines of the historically quite aggressive counterterrorism techniques that the Israeli government has used, but that perhaps this government is less interested, less attuned to the problems of further escalation um, or actively uh, would embrace further escalation in in some sense. Um, our uh, Brookings colleague, Natan Sachs, I remember had a conversation with Ben Wittes in the Lawfare podcast where he uh, compared giving uh, Ben Gvir a uh, role in the government um, and the, the law enforcement apparatus essentially putting the arsonist in charge of the fire department. And and I wonder whether that is kind of the way to think about it, that it's a aggressive action that's kind of within the bounds, but perhaps there's just less interest or no interest in 
preventing the fire from getting out of control, to continue the metaphor. I, I think that probably is right. We've seen the Israeli government take even much more significant military operations than this in, you know, the recent past. And yeah, it's mostly been Netanyahu because it's always been Netanyahu. But it's been, it happened under a variety of coalition that Netanyahu happens to be in charge of that that were not as far right wing as the current government. You know, the right wingness of the current government certainly enters into play here. But and I also think it affects the optics because it affects all the other variables that gauge a response. Right. So I actually think the military operation itself. Um, you know, there are some specific elements that are notable and maybe were influenced by risk tolerance of the given the current set of officials, but. Doesn't strike me as fundamentally different sort of than the sorts of things the Israeli government has done in the past. What's different this time is that while it's happening against a background where Israel seems intent on moving forward with settlement activity and defending that, um, potentially overhauling its domestic governance to again make a lot of measures that effectively are, people are worried will end up curtailing individual civil liberties and particularly help uh, ensconce a much more nationalist identity identity state that excludes Arab citizens of Israel um, and religious minorities and other people in, in a lot of meaningful ways. You know, a lot of these other considerations that just say. Well, against this backdrop, you know, what, what do we as people who are dissatisfied with the status quo, what hope do we have that's going to get better through anything other than violent resistance? And I think that's actually the real factor. It's it's not that this is the – that this is, is itself such or so different. It's the fact that this is a spark on top of a pile of kindling that's accumulated uh, and that as that pile builds up, a spark that might not have caused a conflagration in the past easily could now and and move in that direction. And that that's my sense of things. Um in terms of international relationships, on your question, Alan, I think this is a really important one uh, and, and an area where you will see some significance arising out of this. On the region, regional side, you know, I think you're fundamentally right. Most Arab governments are unlikely to really make a big stink over this. They will object to it. They will complain and they will probably go back to a fairly normal course of action of normalizing with Israel. I do think there's a threshold to that, though. I mean, there are political costs that even, you know, Mohammed bin Salman, uh, you know, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, has to listen to domestically despite not being democratically elected. It's hard for him to buck really, really strong opposition from people who still care about the Palestinian cause. And we've heard him talk about the Palestinian cause just in the last few months as a way of saying, let's slow the role on normalization and pressure to, to normalize from the Biden administration, among others, the relationship between Saudi Arabia and Israel. Palestine becomes, you know, a talking point to say, well, we have to resolve this first before we can really make progress on that front. Now, I think a lot of that's cynical, particularly in the Saudi context, um, but that it reflects real political limits. This issue still really matters a lot to a lot of people in the region. And while things like this that don't budget from what might be a pretty depressing status quo, but is still a status quo, might not move the needle on that, major, major escalations, I think, very much seriously could. Does this mean you're going to see a reversal of normalization of like the Abraham Accords? I don't think so. But I actually think the Abraham Accords, in a weird way, gives Arab governments much more engagement and leverage over the Israeli government. Because now that they've normalized relations and they're building up relations along a lot of other different economic and cultural and social lines are willing to do that, that's a lot more pressure points you can push back on. And frankly, it's a lot more avenues where, you know, people other than just the senior leadership of those governments have voice and input and engagement with Israelis and the Israeli government. Uh, you know, that's why I don't think Abraham Accord is necessarily something bad for the Palestinians. I actually think it could be good for the Palestinians in the long run um, by uh, giving the region a little bit more nuanced leverage with the Israelis. 
the U.S. relationship, though, is I think the really the, the pressure point here. We've seen it essentially not deteriorating, but being under a lot of pressure over the last few months. We have to remember President Biden is essentially more to the right, to put on a kind of not that useful political spectrum, but a more Israel-friendly president than probably his party would direct towards. Uh, he's somebody who's really been intent on maintaining a relationship with Israel, very vocal about supporting that relationship, despite a lot of reservations within the Democratic Party and Democratic legislators and Democratic policymakers about how Israel handles settlements, the West Bank, things like that, to the point that they are in the Democratic Party platform now. Um, that was a big development this last election cycle that people didn't give enough attention to. The Democratic Party platform says we believe in a two-state solution and we think efforts to undermine that by the Israeli government are really a problem. I'm very much paraphrasing, obviously. So that's a scenario that should make Israeli public policymakers actually pretty nervous, I think, because Israel is no longer a source of bipartisan consensus of support. Um, and it's almost entirely because of the way Israel handles Palestinians. You know, it, it is an issue where if you're going to see a lot of um, really, really harsh, violent treatment of Palestinians percolating up, that's going to put a lot of pressure on the U.S. relationship. And it's also going to put a lot of pressure on the European relationships, uh, a lot of who are even more sensitive to those sorts of issues. Now, those relationships are already kind of on the rocks. They're not a high priority for Israel, but they have real economic consequences. And importantly, like those relationships matter for the United States. And so uh, how willing is the United States going to be to go out on a limb to defend Israel in a circumstance where they're trying to build international support? around Ukraine, about a bunch of other issues are trying to rally the world to help confront Chinese expansion and to help, you know, limit Russian aggression in Ukraine. Those are all higher priority items at a certain point, I think. Uh, and it means that Israel's really pushing the line about how stable I think its relationship is likely to be with the United States. So I, I think it's notable in that regard. Yeah. And just to make it even more depressing, if it wasn't already, none of this gets at the longer term demographic challenges that the region faces, which is that the two largest birth rates in that region are, on the one hand, the Palestinians, uh, who obviously want a country, and, th and on the other hand, within Israel, the sort of ultra-Orthodox community, um, which, while distinct from the settler community, um, is nevertheless generally going to be much more sort of right-wing on this issue than the the, the 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 sorts of Israelis who are would be willing to make the real sacrifices and compromises necessary for any sort of durable two-state solution. I mean, many of these Israelis are just leaving the country all, altogether, um, in part because of the political situation, in part because they sort of see uh, uh, the demographic writing on the wall. So yeah, just because this wasn't a depressing enough conversation. And I do think that's, that's like a key point that gets lost in a lot of people's understanding of this, is that the, some would say fiction at this point of a two-state solution, the idea that what the current what's currently happening is part of a process that's going to lead to a two-state solution is a lot of what has legitimized the status quo where Palestinians are not allotted a full, you know, dose of rights that you would expect in a, you know, democratic country like Israel or really any country. That status quo, it's the idea is like, well, this is a temporary state. We're moving towards a two-state solution where eventually they're going to have a lot more autonomy and rights and be able to manage things. That is a, you know, trajectory that has been very questionable for a very long time now. A lot of people think it's dead. A lot of Palestinians think it's dead. And frankly, the United States is in a way kind of one of the, the last people still really holding to it saying, no, we, we need this to go. At the point where that no longer becomes feasible, then the status quo becomes massively hard to reconcile with American or European or most international perceptions of what is right and wrong and what is allowed under international law and what is just ethically acceptable. Because then you're not saying, oh, 
you know, treating Palestinians as second-class citizens, second-class individuals in your country isn't a temporary state. It's the new permanent thing, and you're intending to make it permanent. That's very hard. It'll be a very hard thing for a lot of people to swallow. You know, certainly the Democratic Party platform statement hints at that, and I think that's the logic behind it. And, you know, it's just a, it's a really difficult situation. Israel is putting itself in, but the domestic political drivers for this, for the reasons I think you really noted uh, that are very, very present on this, Alan, like those domestic political factors are just driving towards an outcome that's going to eventually come crashing home on the international plane. One just side note to close us out on this. I will say this was an incident where I really felt the loss of pre-Musk Twitter. Usually, you know, I have TweetDeck open, which is an app that sort of allows you to see a lot of different columns updating in real time. Uh, Musk killed TweetDeck and made you use a new worse tweet deck, which is not as good and apparently now will be gated only to subscribers, which is kind of funny. So I on the on Monday, I did not have tweet deck open. I did not see that this news was happening, whereas usually I would have had a, a feed essentially of, you know, journalists in the region telling me what was going on. And because Musk has so thoroughly broken the platform, I had difficulty searching for news about this. Hashtags didn't work as well. I ran into this stupid rate limit problem. Um, and it was just really a demonstration of how useful Twitter was in terms of keeping up with quick moving events on the world stage half a world away from you and how we've really lost that right now. And by the way, also a useful platform for consuming information that is not mediated by a government which I think is is particularly important in a situation like this where a lot of what we're doing after the fact is sort of sorting through competing explanations provided by uh, the Israeli government and the Palestinian Authority, you know, getting information from people who are there on the ground in the region. Um, and I just really keenly felt that loss. Well, going from a tense situation abroad, let us go to a tense situation at home in a very different domain, the domain, of course, of cyberspace. Um, where a federal district <laughs> judge, ooh. Scott, Scott, we're not allowed to use that term anymore. That's cyber. Stop using that term space. a decade ago. Space on internet, the Plug interwebs into the matrix, into the complex network of tubes that composes our modern, <laughs> our modern wrong. interwebs. He wasn't wrong. He was, he was right. <laughs> they really are tubes. They do get filled with stuff. It's fair. It's fair. Uh, we saw an interesting development on none other than the 4th of July yesterday, our National Independence Day, uh, which we saw a federal judge in Louisiana, is Judge Dowdy, Terry Dowdy, I believe is his first name, uh, who was a, a appointee by former President Trump in 2017, previously a state court judge in Louisiana, issued an injunction prohibiting the Biden administration from engaging with the social various social media platforms on a variety of First Amendment protected activities, quote unquote, uh, without getting into too much what exactly he means by that. Specifically, this arises out of a lawsuit pursued by attorney generals in Louisiana and Missouri, if I'm recalling correctly, as well as a, a number of individuals who claim the Biden administration has been coercing or strongly encouraging, it's a little ambiguous on this, social media platforms to deprioritize various types of right-wing content uh, and essentially block them, but particularly related to the COVID-19 pandemic and health-related information, um, which is actually a recurring theme for this judge who's issued a number of injunctions related to different COVID-19-related measures. Al, let me turn it over to you first. You know, this is a really notable development, uh, kind of a wild one to stop the federal government from 
<laughs> engaging with private actors in an area where they're actively pursuing policy measures. Um, kind of an unprecedented step for a judge to take, as far as I can think of, at a scale like this. And a little absurd, if I'm being completely honest, uh, to give away <laughs> no. my priors. Uh, no. on this. Um, but Alan, you know, you follow the area of law here a lot more closely. Like, is there is there more to this than I'm giving it credit for as just a real example of judicial overreach? And, you know, where do we think it goes from here? Come on, man. Don't make me defend this. Why would you Why would you put me in this? No one's asking you to defend it. Even Alan, both sides, Rosenstein has has certain limits. Okay. (laughs) Okay. So so where to begin? So look, this question of the government doing through private means what it cannot do through public means, specifically in this context, what is sometimes called jawboning, which is quote unquote encouraging and working collaboratively or voluntarily with social media companies to, you know, get them to censor or deplatform or deprioritize speech. That issue, that's a real issue. And that's something that folks should be concerned about. Um, and there's a lot of room for really interesting thinking and compromise and nuance sort of across the political spectrum. <laughs> that being said, this opinion is not an example of that. <laughs> and and I, I just want to situate that, you know, th- we've seen other examples of this coming out of, uh, you know, internet policy and especially, uh, let's call them vigorous judicial res- interventions in that. Um, I think, uh, you know, my favorite example, maybe least favorite example, is the uh, Fifth Circuit opinion upholding Texas's social media content moderation law. Which we should say, if if this order is appealed, that's the circuit it will that's, go yeah, to. That's exactly yeah, right. baby, no, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. Yeah. Uh, you know, another example of uh, an issue that's real, right? I mean, there really is this interesting question about what social media companies should and should not be able to do. But then you get this judge who intervenes in just the most kind of ham-fisted and vituperative and unhelpful way possible. And so I think of this opinion very much in that vein. Now, I should I should be transparent. I have not fully read the opinion. It is 45,000 words. I don't know why it's so long, uh, but it's very, very long. But it's sort of pretty clear what the general idea is. And and that is that this judge has sort of convinced himself that there is a truly massive left-wing conspiracy against all sorts of conservative speech, and that the government and the tech companies are basically in bed with each other, and the tech companies are just doing what the government wants. And and you kind of can tell... That there is this sort of grandiose theory, just based on how this opinion is written. I mean, it, it begins with the um, you know famous quote uh, from Voltaire: "I may disapprove of what you say, but I would defend to the death your right to say it." That's literally the epigraph to the introduction. Hell, then there, yes. <laughs> there are excerpts from what the founding fathers thought about free speech, which is like just so unnecessary. Like we all get it. Free speech is good. You don't have to remind us. You don't have to talk down to us like we're morons who don't understand it. You know, whenever whenever a court starts with this sort of grandiose rhetoric, I, you just should be very nervous that what's going to happen is not going to be like a super nuanced, careful articulation of a difficult problem in the path through, but just a lot of bombast. And um, you know, again, without without getting too far into the into the weeds of this, you know, I I, I think that. What we can say is that this opinion is, well, first, I think just probably not supported by existing case law, which allows a huge leeway for the government to communicate with private entities 
um, and for those private entities to then do what they want based on that communication. Obviously, there are limits, um, but those limits are, I think, far broader than this judge claims that they are. And also, it's just completely unworkable, especially in the short term, of what this injunction is, because you know you have this you know long injunction stating all the things that the government can't do, which basically boils down to you know you can't contact social media companies to even talk about, let alone encourage them to take down, quote unquote, First Amendment protected speech. Okay, fine. That would be quite extreme in its own right. But then there's also a long list of things that the government can do, which includes things like you can talk to social media companies about national security concerns. But but, but of course, plenty of things that are, quote, national security concerns are First Amendment protected speech. So it's it's not even clear to me what the judge is trying to do, except like signal in a way that's totally incomprehensible to anyone but himself that the government can't do the things he doesn't want them to do, but they can totally do all the suppression of the things he's okay with them suppressing. And so it's like not even very coherent on its own uh, right. So I think clearly this is going to be appealed immediately to the Fifth Circuit. Um, we'll see what the Fifth Circuit does. Um, you know, again, the Fifth Circuit is the same circuit that gave us the the net choice opinion. On the other hand, even they might realize that this is just very weird. Um, it needs to be substantially narrowed. But you know what what bums me out is that this is just not a helpful intervention in this debate because again, the issue at the core of it, which is what should be the limitations, whether they're judicially enforceable or just internal to the executive branch or done through legislation or done through congressional oversight, what should be the limitations on the government being able to go out and encourage social media companies to take down speech? That's a really, really important one, and it's someone that, and it's one that all of us across the political spectrum should should care about, right? I mean, you know, I don't think the government fully covered itself in glory, even with respect to COVID stuff. And so I think a lot of skepticism is totally, totally warranted. It's just unfortunate that because of this sort of over-the-top, frankly, bombastic opinion, um, this is now just going to become yet another part of the the culture war and make it even less likely that we're going to actually make you know, productive progress on this issue. Yeah, I mean, I think it's... I think that picture is even bleaker. It's not becoming part of the culture war. It is part of the culture war. This is the the this judge is not issuing an opinion because he's interpreting the law. He's issuing this opinion as a culture warrior. Right? Like this is it's it's legally garbage because it's just signaling. That's all that it is. It's completely untethered from reality. There's a and I mean it's laughably stupid on just like every single level. I started reading it and it was somehow dumber than I anticipated, which is pretty impressive. It is important to underline here, like there is a range when it comes to government communications with platforms. Okay. So there is some stuff where, yes, I agree. It raises legitimate questions under, if you think about it in terms of job owning, there is also the fact that, Pre-2016, it became increasingly common for big platforms to coordinate with the national security apparatus to make sure that they were taking things down like ISIS content. You know, if if there's a terrorist content that perhaps indicates that something bad is going to happen, the platform reaches out to the government and says, hey, FYI, these kinds of coordination until recently were relatively uncontroversial. Alan, you can tell me if you, you want to fight me on that, but I, I think I think that's fair. Um, Alan is nodding, ladies and gentlemen. And then, you know, at some point it shades into something that is concerning to you. But I, I will say, I agree, you know, reading this 
order, it's completely unclear what is and is not okay, in part because saying something like, oh, well, if it's a national security threat, who's going to be determining that? This judge who has made very clear that he doesn't think that 2016 election interference was a national security threat because he says that in this opinion. He's also deeply unconcerned about COVID. Um, in fact, this is a guy who, in a previous opinion, uh, blocking the Biden administration's healthcare worker vaccine mandate, he cited uh, Peter McCullough, who is a well-known and widely discredited anti-vaxxer. So this is not a judge who is uh, tethered to reality. I will also say, I do think it is important to keep in mind that like, this is part of a bigger trend. And I mean that on two fronts. One is that when he, when he says that this is arguably the most massive attack in free speech in U.S. history, he's writes that right after citing to a, a Gorsuch dissent. And Gorsuch wrote recently that um, COVID measures were perhaps the, um, I don't have the quote in front of me right now, but perhaps the um, you know widest uh, assault on American civil liberties in peacetime in American history. Um, which is a laughable assertion, both of these things. And it's completely ridiculous. And I think really underlines that Judge Dowdy is kind of out on the limb here, but he's not totally alone. I'm not saying that Justice Gorsuch is out on the limb with him, but he's like scooting along toward the limb a little bit, maybe. This is part of a sort of a broader argumentative structure that has increasingly been gaining credence on the far right and has made its way into the judiciary. Um, I also think it's important to understand this opinion as part of a broader rollback and attack on uh, platform content moderation measures in the run-up to 2024. That's kind of a reaction against covid uh, moderation and 2020 election moderation. One of the entities or some of the entities that the government is prohibited from uh, reaching out to include the Stanford Internet Observatory, um, the Election Integrity Project, which are organizations that did a lot of good work in 2020 and have been repeatedly targeted by sort of freelance harassers, as well as a number of lawsuits and uh, Representative Jim Jordan. Um, and I think that it's going to have a really negative effect in terms of making uh, the government and other institutions feel incapable of having the kind of coordination that we really, really need um, in order to ensure that our elections are secure. So it's this opinion is laughable, but it is part of and can lead to something very, very ugly. And just on that last point, Quinta, I mean, it's it's ironic, um, I think, that in this opinion that is meant to buttress free speech rights is you know, limiting the right of, uh, you know, platforms and also not just platforms, but just of like research institutions like the, the Stanford Internet Observatory from talking to the government. I mean, like, honestly, I just I would not be that surprised if, you know, six months from now, like lawfare ends up on this list with a bunch of other news organizations because this judge, yes. you know, doesn't. Yeah, exactly. Uh, because, you know, this 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 judge doesn't like the vast left wing conspiracy that is trying to censor conservative speech. I mean, it, it, it is judicial overreach on just a really just remarkable level. And I think just reflects the increasing fact that this new generation of conservative judges are just paranoid about the the government in the sort of, in, in a way that was, was, you know, let's say not, not true of Bush appointees. Yes, this guy is a Trump appointee, we should say. This podcast is brought to you by eHarmony, the dating app to find someone you can be yourself with. 
Why doesn't eHarmony allow copy and paste in first messages? Because you are unique and your conversations should reflect that. eHarmony wants you to find someone who will get you. How are you going to know who gets you? If people send you the same generic conversation starters, they message everyone else. Conversations that actually help you get to know each other. Imagine that. Get who gets you on eHarmony. Sign up today. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Well, so I actually want to dig into that because I actually think that's a little bit of an oversimplification about who these who this guy is and what he appears to be channeling. Uh, although I agree with I think the line that you you got on this Quint does because I've seen a lot of people on Twitter saying, oh, there's a guy who released a 150-page opinion on July 4th. You know, he wants to ride this wave of criticism uh, and this kind of like weird new far-right perception of social media concerns and the uh, Biden administration to new political heights. He's trying to advance his career, get a bigger profile. But I actually think it's really hard to square with who this guy is, right? Um, this guy was a longtime state court judge at a high-level court before he was nominated by former President Trump early in his administration. He's approved by the Senate like 94 to 4, um, almost overwhelming number because he's got such like a conventional judge profile. I believe rated um, well qualified by rated the ABA. Rated well qualified by the ABA because he has a lot of judicial experience. I mean, he's exactly the sort of profile that you expect to go into these positions relatively uncontroversially, honestly, um, compared to plenty of other people who just happen to be, you know, Mitch McConnell's intern eight years ago and go to law school, right? Um, as is the case with some, some a number of other federal judges. And I should say, the guy's like 64. And the age takes senior status in the federal judiciary is 65. And one thing that doesn't happen is when you're old enough to take senior status is getting appointed to another courtship. <laughs> so he's not pushing for a Fifth Amendment judgeship position here, let alone a Supreme Court position, as I've seen some people suggest. That's uh, just not squaring with the reality of who gets nominated for these positions, and he's well aware of that at this point. Um, uh, realistically, I think he's a guy who actually believes this stuff. And that is, uh, in a way, trickier and, and concerning, um, especially because this is a guy who appears, I'm sure he may have had conservative beliefs or things that led him this direction that probably led him to get nominated by Trump early on. But the Senate didn't detect anything kind of wild enough to take this sort of extreme measure, meaning to the extent he got kind of radicalized to buy into this being an appropriate response and that there being such a problem here that warrants such an extreme response. It happened over the last few years, um, and it underscores the the extent to which you saw a lot of people in potentially unexpected corners, I think, get kind of radicalized by the COVID experience, by the information and misinformation spheres that have sprung up around COVID experience, and to some extent, the 2020 election. And it's hard to predict exactly who that comes into here, you know, exactly like who's going to be susceptible to that, which I think, among other things, makes lifetime appointments a little scarier proposition, which is why I think lifetime points are dumb, um, generally speaking, uh, in the judiciary th- as a whole. Uh, the other part, though, I think we're talking about here is is the kind of nationwide injunction element of this, right? Because this is something that I think people have very mixed feelings about. It. I have very mixed feelings about it. Like sometimes I see a nationwide injunction issue, and I'm like, well, yeah, that makes sense to me. Um, but I, I it, it, the line is hard to say. Well, where does the nationwide make sense? Where do, does it not? I'll give a, per, a personal anecdote is, of this is to say, uh, you know, I, I was involved with a bunch of litigation uh, regarding the 
travel ban uh, in 2017. And it was crazy because we got a number of non-nationwide injunctions in that case um, where you ended up with certain pockets of the country enforcing the travel bans, other ones not. So I was working to help um, people who are being sent here who are rerouting through airports to get services and things where they're arriving. And all of a sudden in Boston, where I was, we had waves of people come through Boston Airport because we had a local injunction. And lots of people were trying to get the United States before the ban went back or potentially went back into order, would route through Boston. That's sort of chaotic measure. I'm like, well, I see the I see the virtues of nationwide injunction. And then you see the vices of it in a case like this, where you see one judge's esoteric opinion potentially majorly disrupting a major policy uh, avenue here um, uh, that the federal government needs to pursue. So, you know, I, I think that's an other, another part of the question that's worth talking about a little bit is like, what is the right role for the nationwide injunction? And are there cabins or remedies we can put in place that might mitigate these downsides while still allowing it to exist in cases where there there is a practical application for it? Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. I have to say, you know, there are a few things that I think are more demoralizing than following the debate on nationwide injunctions because it's just so hard <laughs> frankly to find people that are truly principled about it and I've just I have just gotten used to discounting what anyone says about the merits or demerits of nationwide injunctions there are like three people that I actually trust to think about this in other than just like a pure policy driven uh, way and I, I don't know what I think about them because I'm not sure I trust myself to do that analysis frankly I will say this this case does occur to me as the reason you would have a nationwide injunction. Like if you really believe, right? Like let's say just accept for a moment that what the government is doing is a you know vast suppression of First Amendment speech on a monumental scale. And we could imagine facts, not these facts, but we could imagine facts that would support such a finding. Then you would want a nationwide injunction because what would it even mean to enjoin it in Louisiana? Like no one's in Louisiana, right? And <laughs> Um, well, sorry, sorry. I should be clear. Louisiana is great. I've, I've always wanted to go to New Orleans, eat beignets, but it's like, not like the federal government's in Louisiana and it's not like the tech companies are in Louisiana. So who are you enjoining? Now you could of course, right. Say like, well, then you should have brought the case in the Northern district of California, but that's kind of arbitrary too. So but I think you would enjoin the treatment of the people located in the jurisdiction. So you would say these people, these specific plaintiffs who are, you know, can establish jurisdiction and venue here. They're the ones protected. You wouldn't go so far as to say, and by the way, this is a, essentially a, you know, a weird version of a class action lawsuit. Everybody else similarly positioned is going to protect it. I'm going to inverse this and not protect the specific plaintiffs. Instead, I'm going to you know, l- limit the government's action. I actually think there is a line you could do as a, as a non-sort of you know, categorical response here that, that the judge chose not to pursue. I mean, I, I I guess so, and I need to sort of dig into the procedural posture of this case more, right? And the nature of the plaintiffs, and you know what sort of the class issues were, were there. But I, I guess my point is, if you are going to have nationwide injunctions available, this does seem like a pretty good reason to do so, because you do have a frankly nationwide policy that you are dealing with, not fundamentally a regional policy or a policy whose importance comes from the fact that it is regionally targeting or that it is targeting individuals who are in various regions. So, you know, just as, although there were some non-nationwide injunctions of the travel ban, there were also some nationwide injunctions of the travel ban, even though you could just do it region by region. um, You know, if you supported those back then, I think you have to support this one here. Again, now you don't have to support literally this one because the underlying merits are kooky, but I do think you have to be open to that in, in, in this case. Yeah, I mean, I think the takeaway here is just like if you put dumb people in charge, they'll do stupid things no matter what the surrounding structures are. 
You're you're salty about this, Quint. I love it. It's so dumb. And also, it's can not, I just say, dropping great. 155 opinion of just trash on July 4th is truly anti-American. We were talking about this on 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 the Slack uh, on July 4th, and Quinta just did not want to deal with this. I, Quinta, like, you, sh- you shut I, that conversation down. No, no, you were right to. You were right to. You were right to. I mean, I have a toddler. All my holidays are ruined, so whatever. Yeah, I was at home Scott, doing nothing and reading this opinion. I was also <laughs> yeah, yeah. doing nothing. Yeah, Scott, Scott knows exactly what I'm the, I gotta say, the, the three lawfare editors, the three lawfare people with toddlers were just like on Slack talking about this all day nothing, yesterday. Nothing else to talk about. <laughs> nothing else. But there's no holiday. There are no holidays. Moving from one government that is alleged to care a lot about social media content moderation to another government that it also cares a lot about social media content moderation. This is not a good segue, but I'm doing the best that I can. Uh, let's talk about India uh, and let's talk about uh, Narendra Modi and his new place in the geopolitical firmament. Scott, uh, or as Scott uh, mentioned at the top of the show, um, he's had quite an eventful couple of weeks. First, he was feted by the Biden administration last month in a pull out all the stops state visit. And recently he spoke uh, along with the leaders of Russia and China at the Shanghai Cooperative, really trying to, again, I think, emphasize that you know, India is uh, you know, the, an important part of this emerging multipolar uh, order. So I guess at least this week, it's just Narendra Modi's world, uh, and we all just live in it. Scott, let, let me ask you the, the, the first question. Um, do you think that the, the last couple of weeks does, in fact, reflect a, a changed power profile for, for India? Um, that's certainly what the discussion has been about. And I think the conventional wisdom is that India, which actually recently overtook China as the largest country by population, you know, is for all its faults still a multi-ethnic democracy that is creaking along, though we will talk about the, the issues with that uh, later. It has a, a vibrant and fast-growing economy, obviously benefits linguistically and in, in various ways um, within uh, the, the global society. You know, do, do you think that, that this is rightly being viewed as India's sort of newest coming out moment? I think that's right. I mean, the, what I will say is the thing that I was struck by was when Modi came to the White House and Congress the other week. And I will admit I wanted to talk about this topic because we didn't have time to talk about it the other week. And I thought this was notable is that it was the warmest reception I have seen a world leader get in such a long time with sort of kind of effusive praise and engagement for a guy who's pretty controversial for reasons we can get into, including, you know, he represents fairly like nationalistic, ethnic-related, identity-related political movement um, and has been tied to various types of violence and very problematic things that people don't feel great about and shouldn't feel great about for the last several years, but nonetheless is the leader of this this country. That's a, a notable American partner in a lot of regards, ally in a lot of regards, and has always had a close relationship with the United States, but not one that was quite fetid in that way in the past, at least th- that I'm aware of. You know, And it's fascinating to see that sort of warm embrace, and I don't think it's a coincidence. I think it reflects the fact that India is at a moment now where the shifting global alignments and priorities has really put in a privileged position in a way I think is a really good parallel with like Turkey, the way Turkey has been for the last several decades, honestly, because of U.S. and Western involvement in the Middle East. Turkey's been able to play its geopolitical and geographic position to some extent as a be able to play different sides off of each other slash, you know, cater to all of them, maintain ties with all of them in a way that has really let it kind of, box outside of its weight class in terms of global affairs. 
India has always kind of done that economically, not always, but in recent years, it's kind of done that economically. It is a major economy, major labor force in a way that I think it's overshadowed a little bit by China's rise economically, but India is right there, right behind it. Um, and in certain sectors and ways and interacts with the global economy, you know, is even further along and more influential than China in a lot of ways. And as China, you know, as, as the global economy, or at least the Western driven parts of the global economy, disengage from China or or kind of what is the what is the Biden administration's preferred term for this kind of risk adjust De- decouple decouple thank you yeah decoupling from China actually they consciously say it's not- conscious decoupling that's Gwyneth Paltrow's preferred term but as we, as we de-risk from China in various <laughs> sectors uh India is very well positioned to take up a lot of those relationships they have a very well developed high tech sector in a lot of regards you know huge labor force relatively low costs like uh you know India is you know economically in a great position um, and perhaps an important ally for the United States and other economies that are looking for other partners other than China with which to do a lot of this kind of outsourcing of production and development in in different sectors. Um, And then politically, it's in this position, which is from the United States perspective, probably particularly desirable in that it has a history of pretty hard relationship with China. Um, You know, India and China have come to arms over their shared border at different times. And there are still sources of tension and points of dispute along that shared border to this very day. Uh, so, you know, that kind of makes it so that India is tempting. Now, India and China also have a relationship that was on display in this Shanghai cooperative meeting India hosted. You know, and I think India is very much going to try and keep ties up with China. Same true with Russia. India and Russia, since, you know, have always had sort of ties. India was leader of the non-aligned movement, which, uh, you know, consciously kind of maintained ties with um, the Soviet bloc during the Cold War, as well as with the United States uh, as kind of like a, a, a third branch, but nonetheless was has kept relationship with both governments into the current day. But, and India notably like doesn't really participate with the full range, well, really much of the sanctions at all on uh, Russia over Ukraine. It's been kind of a, a conscientious objector, if you will, from those policies, as have a lot of other major actors in what is often seen as the global South or the developing world. But nonetheless, you know, India, I think, has generally gravitated towards the United States. So it's a major potential tentpole in a kind of global alliance that the Biden administration is very consciously trying to cultivate because it sees, I think correctly, one of the United States' advantages in the competition between these uh, other kind of near-peer powers is that it can develop alliances. It has alliances. China and Russia really don't. China has like complex economic relationships, but very few close alliances. Russia doesn't really have either these days, except for a couple of kind of client states. So, you know, it just means that India is very important. Um, That comes with certain downsides when you talk about particularly like human rights issues and other issues where Modi's on the wrong side of in India. But um, but I think it's a a new kind of geostrategic reality and and one that kind of makes sense, uh, although that can be a bitter pill to swallow. So, Scott, yeah, you you mentioned this last point, which is, I think, the main fly in the ointment, which is that uh, despite all the happy talk um, that we saw at the state visit, I mean, India is experiencing some very serious internal issues with respect to its treatment of, in particular, the very large Muslim uh, minority there um, and its increasing move into a quite chauvinistic Hindu nationalist ethno state. And Quinta, I know, I know you've thought a lot, a lot about this. And, and uh, in, the way I want to frame this question for you is, is the United States making a mistake by not conditioning some of this warm embrace on an expectation that Modi treats the non-Hindu and specifically the Muslim uh, population of India better than he is doing? I don't know if I would go that far just because 
look, international relations is difficult. The U.S. has a lot of unsavory friends. I will say that I found the American press coverage of Modi's visit kind of disturbing, frankly, and how little play it gave to the increasing and very real concerns about uh, erosion isn't the right word because it's like something that Modi is consciously engaged in. It's like erosion, but he's holding the bucket of water and sloshing it over the the democracy um, in this in this comparison. And, and the water is eroding the the limestone of, of democracy from this exactly, bucket. Exactly. Yes, really really yes. explain this just analogy. To, just to really make it super clear, <laughs> um, that there there was a lot of you know cable news coverage about Modi's here. Who is he? Here is this guy. Handshake time. Right, you know, India rising, et cetera, et cetera. There were there was certainly some news coverage of uh, increasing authoritarianism and human rights abuses, primarily abuses of Muslims, um, the repression in Kashmir, uh, in American coverage, but not to the extent that you would expect to see, frankly, or that I I kind of hoped to see, not in you know above the fold, so to speak. Um, I don't know if it was literally above the fold or not, but it certainly was not prominent, I would say, in the news coverage. Now, maybe I'm just reading the wrong news coverage. I don't know if either of you saw more of this, but I was really struck by how little there was. And it honestly reminded me a lot of 2015 when Modi first came to power. There were already concerns among among Indians, among people who knew the region uh, because of his role as the governor of Gujarat during a really horrific massacre of Indian Muslims there some years ago. Um, But he was basically heralded in the American press as, you know, he's new, he's a reformer, he's going to bring India into a new age. Who is this guy? You know, soft focus profiles. And it it felt like kind of a, a return to form there in a way that I just... Yeah, I'm repeating myself. Found really disturbing. I will say there was a, a striking moment where uh, Modi and Biden held a press conference together. Um, Sabrina Siddiqui, who is a White House reporter for the Wall Street Journal, asked Modi a question about the rights of minorities, chiefly Muslims in India, and has been just absolutely hounded on social media, including by at least one Indian politician who is a member of the BJP, Modi's party, um, in in a way that is, I think, pretty normal at this point, unfortunately, for journalists and other public figures who criticize the BJP um, to the extent that the White House and uh, the National Security Council both gave statements saying that this kind of harassment is unacceptable. Um, so we all know that journalists love to talk about themselves and feel that the most important problems are the ones where journalists are affected. So I do kind of wonder if seeing what happened to an American journalist who did ask the obvious question might encourage the U.S.-based press to be a little more reflective about its coverage of India, but I'm not super optimistic. I don't know. Do you think? Do you both think that I'm I'm too pessimistic here? I mean, I, I, uh, look, I I don't think you're wrong in your criticisms of the media coverage. I I, I don't think that you have. <laughs> look, media never stays positive very long. Right. Um, at the end of the day, <laughs> media turns on everyone. So I, I, if you're pessimistic that you know the media will never discover that Modi is is not Milk, milkshake you know, duct under Modi. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, that I, I, I suspect they will they will turn on him just like they turn on everyone <laughs> for good or bad reasons. 
Yeah, I think that's probably right. But it, but it underscores the challenge that the Biden administration, the United States more generally faces in this sort of scenario and that you need to find a way to embrace this country without making it a personality driven relationship, right? Without, you know, Modi, it's hard to ignore. He's the head of state, right? Uh, so you have to engage with him substantially and probably celebrate him to some degree as far as he's representing the state. But at the same time, you have to find ways to signal this relationship isn't about Modi the man. This is about India the state and the country and the relationship between our two countries. And you can do that. I mean, it's about developing bilateral ties, developing exchanges, being very visible at a variety of levels, not just with Modi. Um, but, you know, maybe we'll see major visit by Blinken and maybe by President Biden to India if this really becomes a major priority in the next year or two. Um, and other sorts of visits like that where they engage with a broader swath of the country and visit a lot more people. You know, that could be tricky, but can also really be a sign to say, hey, India, you know, we're in your corner and we want you to be in our corner for reasons unrelated to Narendra Modi. And I think that's the ideal. And it's something I'm sure people at the State Department are thinking about, people at the White House are thinking about. The problem is that's a long-term cultivation and relationship and and a lot of strategic planning, unfortunately, really like concentrates on the short term, to be honest. Like it's it's because you're putting out fires and responding to shorter term demands. Um, so uh, you know, who knows a big, big priority that'll be, but I do think there's probably some thinking about that. Say, how do we how do we make this a bigger thing other than just about Modi? But, you know, there is that inclination to kind of overlook these problematic aspects of these leaders' records. And it's a really, really hard issue to uh, square. You know, the United States has a long history of how it's done this in the Middle East and other places where you have relationship with regimes that you think are problematic on a lot of human rights fronts. Um, and what you often see, um, and, you know, the WikiLeaks uh, leak actually drove home the extent to which the United States does seriously do this. Um, that's not defending the leaks, which I think were a problem for other reasons. But, you know, the United States actually does engage even where they are allies with the leading government. They don't ignore human rights issues. They do engage with them, but they do it quietly. They don't do it publicly. They engage with different leaders. They monitor situations. They report on it. Um, doesn't mean there are policy priorities. No, not necessarily. Um, doesn't mean those regimes leverage their uh, interests in the United States in other ways to get away with more than they might otherwise, yes, it does. And I'm not sure that's entirely avoidable. Um, but it doesn't, it doesn't mean these issues don't go away. They become part of a complex bilateral relationship. But they, they often kind of recede, those, those lines of discussion recede into the background in a way, precisely so that they're not publicly embarrassing to what is necessarily a public relationship that you're kind of trying, kind of trying to lock into place. I suspect that's what we're going to see in this case. And that's going to be troubling for a lot of folks on the outside. I, I think government will actually follow up on those and do those things. I think they've got a reasonably good record of doing that. Um, again, not, not that it's a priority, but they do at least engage on them and follow them. But, uh, you know, it's it's tricky and it's frustrating. It's just a really hard line to walk and to say, how do you strike the right balance? What I will say, though, in the current environment with China being the priority it is and India having such a clear nexus to that, um, I strongly suspect the U.S. government, whether the Biden administration or future governments, is going to err on the side of being overly generous to India. And that is going to cause problems on other issue fronts where we think the governing authorities in India might have other issues. One point just to close on, I mean, your point about making sure that the U.S.-India relationship is not a relationship that is predicated on Modi's presence specifically, it's worth remembering that Trump very explicitly did align himself with Modi uh, as a sort of charismatic personalist leader. He held a 
the weirdly named Howdy Modi Rally in yeah. Houston, Texas, right. um, where there's a big uh, Indian diaspora community in, I believe, 2019. Um, and so was extremely enthusiastic about that. And obviously, we know there's a very long track record of the Trump administration not really caring about pushing allies on rights questions, which I think is worth keeping in mind as we move toward 2024. Well, folks, that is the end of our time to discuss these issues this week. But we would not be rational security if we did not leave you with some object lessons to ponder over in the week to come until we are back in your podcatchers. Alan, what did you bring to us this week? So I continue my uh, recommendations of excellent audiobooks that I download from Libby, which is great. You should all download. You can get free audiobooks from your library. So I am listening uh, right now to uh, uh, John Lewis Gaddis, the Yale historian's uh, biography of George. Is it Keenan or Kennan? I realize I actually don't know. I'm embarrassed to say I don't know how to pronounce, how to pronounce. It's Kennan. Okay. Kenan. You're listening to an audiobook. I know. It's weird. He's clearly the word Kennan has been said 8,000 times, and I just like, I, I haven't clocked it. Um, Kennan. Kenan is the guy from Good Burger. Kennan is the guy from the Cold War. <laughs> <laughs> if, that, if that helps at all. It does. It does help. Thank you. So it's a biography of George Kennan, the famous uh, uh, diplomat and Soviet specialist, author of The Long Telegram, um, the inventor uh, of the American strategy of containment. Um, it's a really good biography. Uh, Gaddis is himself a brilliant uh, historian. The, it won the Pulitzer back in 2011. And I just have to say, I really like biographies for learning about history because if you can just tie historical period to the, the story of a person, especially one who is kind of fundamentally sympathetic uh, like Kennan was. I mean, he was just a decent person, which is always nice to read about. He had obviously had his weirdnesses, but it's a really nice way to learn about this um, to learn about this history. So highly recommended uh, Gaddis's biography of George Kennan. I have read that book as well. It is very good. It is lengthy. It's detailed because what the story behind the biography is that uh, Gaddis and Kennan knew each other for years because Gaddis is like the premier Cold War historian and it was younger, but they were like, you know, overlapping kind of generations. And talked to him for years about writing this biography. I kept getting <laughs> and notes Kenan and kept not dying. <laughs> And he kept not dying. Exactly. And so they no, had like, he, he kept, he kept apologizing to, which is the cutest thing. Like Kenneth kept apologizing to Gaddis for not being dead yet. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's amazing. It's a really crazy story. So it's like an incredibly in-depth biography because they had a lot of conversation and planned this thing for decades. Um, and it's, it's a fascinating read for a fascinating era. People don't understand how crazy early 20th century global politics were and the people involved at it in it who had a windows into the Russian revolution and all these things happening around the world. It's just fascinating story. So great, great, great recommendation. Quinto, what do you have for us this week? I also have something that has to do with audio content in the past at some, some previous era, I recall recommending an object lessons, the app autumn, a U D M, which provided, uh, for reasons that will soon become clear, uh, audio versions of many articles from major magazines, Autumn is dead. R.I.P. Autumn. Uh, it has been purchased by the New York Times and turned into something atrocious called New York Times Audio, which I already hate. I tried using it. It is worse. I don't like it. I don't like that it's tied to my New York Times subscription. I don't like that it's like intermingled with New York Times podcasts. And also a lot of like short articles that are read out loud, including weirdly things from the cooking section. That is not useful to me. That's like the last thing that I 
when I want read to me. It doesn't have the written version of the of the article that had the text you could kind of like look back and scroll along if you like missed something or didn't quite hear something um it only exists in ios there is no android app this is terrible i'm so angry about that i am so angry about the no android i'm an i'm a proud android user yeah you are And autumn worked for android and new york times works for android so why can't they make this new thing work for android it is it's impressive. I'm so mad. It's just it's a great example of our current era where like there was this thing that was small and perfect and useful and I paid $5 a month or whatever for it and then it was purchased by a big conglomerate and they made it worse. Are you familiar with Cory Doctorow's theory of enshittification? That is actually exactly what I, what I was thinking about. <laughs> Yeah, they That's the Autumn. second time today I've seen that referenced. I think it was referenced in terms of Musk's handling of Twitter, but somehow I had not encountered the concept of enshittification, or at least I hadn't seen it written out in a way that it registered with me. Uh, and I've seen it twice it today. It so much. Yeah. yeah. I, I'm not sure it's actually like analytically at all a rigorous or precise or true concept, but it certainly captures the vibe. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, on that note, I also have some audio content uh, to bring uh, to the listeners. Uh, not that we like the additional competition. I feel like we all have obviously been doing things around the holiday or whatever that we've been listening to a lot of audiobooks. Uh, I have rediscovered the joys of re- listening to audiobooks on one and a half speed, uh, which I know you also do, Alan. I like had stopped doing this for a while. One and, and a half, two X minimum. Oh my gosh. Patrick. How, how is your brain yet. still functioning? It's just you train for it. I'm like an athlete. It is amazing. <laughs> I, I've started listening to all my stuff on one and a half times because I just realized I just have way more stuff I want to listen to than I have time to do. And my it drives my wife nuts. We'll sit in the car and I'll hop onto my phone. And she's like, what are these chipmunks you're listening to? And I'm like, this is rational security. This is us. We're just at one and a half speed. Um, the, the problem the problem is your your voice on one and a half speed is like 12 speeds. Super fast. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I, it, it, it's it's an issue. Sorry for those uh, speed listeners. We get complaints. You don't need to send me anymore. I'm not changing. Uh, the the What I was going to recommend, though, is that I have been digging into a lot of long-form nonfiction and fiction in audiobook format, and I discovered a great book that I have loved listening on audio um, is part of the Oxford History of the United States, which itself is a phenomenal series of books about American history by a, an array of really celebrated authors. I have either read or listened to three quarters of the series, which is quite impressive because it's like 12, 800, 2,000 page books. Um, but I was in Iraq for a year and a half, and so I did not have a lot to do, and that's what I did. Um, Scott, you are quite impressive. Thank you. Um, and the one book in particular I kind of skipped over. I had it in a hard copy because I've had it on my bookshelf for years, which is this book called, even though it's very up my lane, called From Colony to Superpower, which is a by uh, George Herring, which is like a history of American diplomacy and foreign relations, essentially. But because it wasn't part of the chronological series, I like wasn't sure when to read it, and I just never got to it. And I've used it as kind of a reference text. I think I even assigned a chapter out of it for one of my classes at some point. But I never sat down to just read the whole thing. And so I put it on an audiobook, and it's a phenomenal audio listen. I think because of its scope, because it covers so much uh, so artfully, uh, and he's actually a very engaging, dynamic writer in a way a lot of diplomatic history, I read a fair amount of diplomatic history, a lot of them are not. But he's very punchy and interesting, and he's covering so much material. 
it's just a phenomenally good read. Um, the one thing that will get you is that it's not clear when he's quoting people when he's not. So essentially, he'll say something horribly racist or sexist, and you'll be like, "What?" And I'll look back in the book and be like, "Oh, he's quoting someone from the time." I see. They don't. They don't do like the 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 voice tone shift. There's like a specific I, voice a way, way of I doing it. One and a half times, <laughs> unfortunately. Yeah. Uh, the way he kind of always works it into the prose where it's clear when you read it, but when you listen, it does get lost a little bit. But phenomenal, phenomenal read. Um, so I will highly recommend that if you're a diplomatic history buff. And it's actually pretty good on legal stuff too, which I was happy with because a lot of diplomatic histories skimp on that or write it off. Um, and this one does not. So worth checking out uh, from Colony to Superpower, George Herring, um, who I think passed away a few years ago. And honestly, the whole Oxford history of the United States series is just phenomenal. They're all great. What God hath wrought is one of my is my favorite of the entries so far. Um, it's just worth checking out. So look into that as well. Do you listen to this on Audible? Uh, I, uh, uh, Scott, I forgot your name there for a second. No big deal. <laughs> I try to <laughs> on Libby when I well, Libby when I can, um, but I often find I am I guess not that original, and so looking to read things that other people are looking to read, I have to wait a little while. Um, so the other thing I'm listening to right right now, which is going to be a future a future recommendation, is a I won't tell, say what, but it's a very very good sci fi novel. It might be my next week's object lesson, um, but that one I couldn't get on Libby, so I had to get on Audible. Um, this book I happened to have downloaded on Audible years ago and just never listened to. Um, because I am one of those people who had a subscription for years and got so many credits and forgot about it and then had <laughs> so to go many credits. Books before they expire. Um, and so I have a ton of stuff on Audible and tend to listen there, although I do second Libby is a phenomenal app um, and recommend that as well. And I did pay for Autumn for years and I don't think I've ever used it, but I think I've been paying for it for like two years. So I'm you got reverse. my money, Autumn. I finally canceled my Audible subscription because I was like, I just never used this. And I loved Autumn. I, did, I didn't use Audible for years and then all of a sudden just like I go come in waves and like for the last three weeks all I've done is listen to Audible which is great I think I've listened to 3,000 pages of books in the last three weeks uh, just because it's two and a half speed I'm taking care of kids I'm driving around it's great so with all that (laughs) that in fact brings us to the end of this week's episode but remember that Rational Security is of course a production of Lawfare so be sure to visit our webpage at lawfaremedia.org new webpage no if you remember Object Lesson from last week, lawfarmedia.org for our show page with links to best episodes, for our written work and the written work of other lawfare contributors, and for information on Lawfare's other wonderful podcast series. And while you're at it, be sure to follow us on Twitter at RETL Security, and be sure to leave a rating review wherever you might be listening. In addition, sign up to become a material supporter of Lawfare to support our work on Patreon at patreon.com slash lawfare, and you will get an ad-free version of this podcast, among other special benefits. Our audio engineer and producer this week was Noam Osband of Goat Rodeo, and our music, as always, was performed by Sophia Yan. And we are once again edited by the wonderful Jen Patcha Howell. On behalf of my co-hosts, Alan and Quinta, I am Scott R. Anderson, and we will talk to you next week. Until then, goodbye. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most. But if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. 
Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.